Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Today, I am happy to welcome a very special guest, Herr Professor Dr. Dieter Schultz, Professor and Chair Emeritus of English and American Studies at Ruprecht Karls Universität in Heidelberg. He is a leading expert on the great American author and intellectual Henry David Thoreau. Welcome, Dr. Schultz. Thank you. Dr. Schultz's most recent book on Thoreau is called Henry David Thoreau. Vega eines amerikanischen Schriftstellers, published by Matas Verlag in 2017. I read the book and highly recommend it for anyone interested in Thoreau. Thoreau begins civil disobedience with the motto, that government is best, which governs least, which he then takes to the next step. That government is best, which governs not at all. That's quite an amazing opening. Can you help us understand it a little bit better? He is, of course, trying to be provocative um, as part of a rhetorical strategy, which we find quite often. Um, he sometimes refers to his own openings as extreme statements. I think at the beginning of walking, where he says, I wish to make a statement for nature, an, ex an extreme statement. Uh, the idea being to shake people you know, out of their complacence. Um, but when you read on, you will find that um, he imme almost immediately, well, doesn't necessarily revise his position, but he adopts a different rhetorical stance by saying, well, but to be, you know, practical, what I, what I ask for immediately is not no government at all, but at once a better government. I want to be a good neighbor and I want to talk to my neighbors, you know, more or less also on their own terms to communicate with them. And that opening statement, of course, would, I, I would lose, basically would lose my audience first having shaken them up, but then I would probably lose them. So now let's talk sense, which means, you know, what's wrong with the current government and how can we improve the situation? What are the practical measures that could be taken immediately? And one of them would be, you know, withdraw your support from a government that supports slavery by, for instance, refusing to pay taxes. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about Thoreau's complex thoughts about slavery. In the essay, Civil Disobedience, we read, a man today cannot without disgrace be associated with the American government. I cannot for an instant recognize that political organization as my government, which is the slave's government also. This is a clear indictment of slavery. In your book, however, you quote a passage in Walden in which Thoreau discusses slavery, and to me it seems like he minimizes the horror of slavery. He writes, I sometimes wonder that we can be so frivolous as to attend to the gross but somewhat foreign form of servitude called Negro slavery, there are so many keen and subtle masters that enslave both North and South. It is hard to have a Southern overseer, 
It is worse to have a northern one, but worst of all, when you are the slave driver of yourself. When I read this, I said, wow, today many people would argue that being a slave is certainly worse than all the others. Could you please explain these comments a little bit more? I think one, one needs to take into account the, um, the context. Um, what he does address the issue of slavery uh, directly, as he does in partly in civil disobedience, and then of course later in his essay on you know slavery in in Massachusetts, and in his um, pamphlets supporting uh, uh, John Brown, uh, slavery is sort of the the absolute uh, horror. But a book like Walden is chiefly addressed to a white sort of educated audience, and. What he wants to point out there is the fact that apart from the system of slavery, you know, evil as that is, and he, I don't think he would want to minimize that, there are many mechanisms uh, that we are subject to without being aware of it that are just as enslaving, just as manipulating and crippling in a spiritual, mental sense as the system of slavery is. It's not physical violence, but it's a kind of mental violence that we do to each other and to ourselves, kind of an internalized mechanism of, of, of violence that is all the more important to discuss and to dramatize because it is more or less in, invisible and we are not aware of it most of the time. The evils of slavery are obvious for everyone to see, and it's important to be, you know, uh, to oppose them. But there are evils, there are slave drivers in our minds uh, that take a lot, of, lot more work to identify, to uncover, because they are so hidden, you know, so uh, so indirect in a way, you know, but as forceful, he would say, as physical slavery. What, what were some of the enslaving things, some mm -hmm. specific examples yeah. that, that mm -hmm. Thoreau would be interested in mm -hmm. raising in his yeah. neighbor's minds? Uh -huh. yeah. I think the first and by far longest chapter or essay of Walden, the chapter entitled uh, Economy, addresses at least you know some of those those issues. They largely derive, he would say, from the economic arrangement of things, the economic uh, system, the way in which, for instance, uh, the market, such mechanisms as competition, trade, constantly produces new needs that we think are necessary for us. But deep down, when you look at them more closely, they aren't really secondary needs created by by fashion uh, by competitiveness keeping the idea of keeping up with the joneses i guess we would would call it today other mechanisms come from tradition that we think we have to act a certain way because this is how it's always been done you know instead of you know questioning is this really what we want what we need so there's this a, a vast array of mechanisms which Marx around the same time interestingly 
um, identified as mechanisms of entfremdung, mm -hmm. of alienation. You know, forces that we no longer recognize as having been produced by us, that come our way as something alien, strange, objective, and we are no longer aware of the fact that we have produced them, so we can also do away with them. And this is, you know, I think there's really a parallel there between Thoreau's project and Marx's project in making us aware of forces of alienation, which are also forces of self-alienation, largely. It's funny you mentioned Marx, but we can also mm. go back to, say, Diogenes, the, the cynical oh, yeah. philosopher mm. who famously yeah. Yeah. would walk around with a lantern trying to find a real yeah. man right. in ancient Greece. Right. Um, and there's that funny passage in Civil Disobedience where Thoreau says, maybe there are, there are 999 men in Massachusetts. No, probably nine. No, maybe just one. There's just mm -hmm. one real man who's not alienated in Massachusetts. Yeah. Right, and right. That's, that's right. quite a, mm -hmm. a funny passage. Yeah, I think that the key concept here, although uh, Thoreau nowhere uses that term, really is, is, is alien, alienation. Alienation. And alienation is perhaps the worst kind of slavery because it is so, so hidden, largely. I think if we were to read more of Marx into Thoreau mm. than we should, we would see the different levels of alienation that Marx discusses in, yeah. in his uh -huh. essay, essay on alienation. Man is alienated from nature. Thoreau yeah. would say man is definitely alienated yeah. from nature. nature. We are alienated from society as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thirdly, we are alienated from, from, each other. from each other. But the worst one, as Marx from, said and Thoreau would say, we are alienated from, from, from our, our own selves. And yeah. that's the great sadness that Thoreau, mm -hmm. I guess, wants to wake us up from. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Last year in 2017, we celebrated the 200-year anniversary of Thoreau's birth. And unfortunately, last week, on April 4th, we mourned the 50th year anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King. But next week on April 16th, we will reflect on the 55 year anniversary of King's famous letter from Birmingham jail, in which he discusses civil disobedience and social justice, very much in the spirit of Thoreau. Thoreau has had a profound effect on many Americans. Could you talk a little bit about his influence on Martin Luther King specifically and on the civil rights movement in general? Uh, Martin Luther King refers to uh, Thoreau several times in his, uh, his memoirs. This whole idea that, as he interpreted of nonviolent resistance, that there is a way of fighting a system that is perceived as evil by simply refusing to cooperate King found that very appealing. Um, he, he more or less ignored the possibility, which I think is quite um, important also to uh, Thoreau in his text, especially his later writings of, of violent, by emphasizing nonviolence as uh, his uh, main strategy, nonviolent uh, resistance. But this, this, this whole idea that a system can be undermined by refusing to cooperate with it without necessarily attacking it by force. He found that very appealing. I should mention to the audience that Dr. Schultz gave a lecture before the show today 
And I thought it was interesting that you said that if we were to read civil disobedience by Thoreau very carefully, we wouldn't actually assume that he's talking only about nonviolent demonstration as King advocated. Could you talk a little bit more about why you think Thoreau might, in certain circumstances, recommend violent action? Well, first of all, there's this um, series of pamphlets of talks that he produced in the 19, uh, in the 1850s in support of, of John Brown, um, who was, of course, a, a, a violent uh, abolitionist, you know, taking force. Think of the raid on Harper's Ferry, a bloody raid which led to the death of quite a few people and eventually also to the execution of John Brown. And uh, Thoreau, unlike most of the mainstream abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, wholeheartedly su uh, supported Brown and saw him as a martyr, even went as far as comparing him to Christ, you know, says he's like Christ crucified. I think, though, that there is not, not really a break here in his development because you can see the germ, this idea that there may be situations where violence will be inevitable as a last resort. You can already see that in his essay, Civil Disobedience. For most of the essay, of course, he doesn't address the issue of violence at all. But when he does, he says, you know, isn't blood flowing already? So people say, well, what if blood should flow? He says, well, isn't blood flowing already when the conscience is wounded? So I think there is really a continuity vis-à-vis -vis this possibility of violence as a last resort from his essay, Civil Disobedience, to his later defense of uh, John Brown. And Thoreau does seem to believe that when a man acts against, or a woman acts against mm -hmm. his conscience, mm -hmm. there is some wounding that's done. There is, yeah. He even says that blood comes out when, mm -hmm. when, when a person acts against his, his conscience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and there is this strange connection between uh, meta metaphorical blood coming out, but the loss of, loss of one's human nature comes out when you act against your, mm -hmm. your conscience. Yeah. Thoreau was interested in waking people up. And indeed, I think in the U.S. now, there's this new phrase, to be woke. Mm -hmm. But perhaps this comes from the transcendentalists mm -hmm. as well. So mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about this concept of renewal or rebirth or awakening people mm -hmm. and what it has to do with tr the tradition of transcendentalism? I, th I think one could even go a little you know, beyond or behind transcendentalism to the um, the Protestant, specifically the Puritan, the Puritan idea of um, yeah rebirth, and the Puritan sermon, particularly the uh, the Jeremiah as a kind of sermon that is meant to shake people up, to make them aware of what's wrong with them, what's wrong with the status quo, to make them so profoundly aware of it that then this will be bring about a process of uh, regeneration, a spiritual revival. So it's a tradition that goes back sort of beyond transcendentalism to uh, colonial times, I think, to the sermons like, say, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, or the Jeremiah's one is familiar with from, from colonial, uh, colonial times. Attempts have been made by, by scholars, and I think, 
quite well taken to see civil disobedience in the tradition of the American Jeremiah. But how do the transcendentalists deal with this idea of rebirth and, and revisioning and, mm -hmm. and becoming yeah. awake? Isn't this a trope independently yeah. for them as well? Yeah. I mean, transcendentalism mm -hmm. implies mm -hmm. in, in the word right. seeing anew, transcending your day-to-day yeah. -day existence yeah. and getting somewhere else. I think that that point is, 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 is very well taken. One, one is alive, I think, as long as one changes, <laughs> as long as one doesn't. I mean, staying the same is stasis, is a kind of spiritual death. So when, say, Emerson talks about self-reliance, he thinks of the self as an entity that undergoes constant changes, constant metamorphoses, and only to the extent that it does change all the time. Is it alive and healthy? Any kind of stasis is a sort of spiritual death. Throw ends civil disobedience with this. There will never be a really free and enlightened state until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power from which all its own power and authority are derived and treats him accordingly. In this statement and so many others, I see so many political views, both from the right and from the left in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I hear echoes of libertarianism and far-right mm -hmm. thinking from the Montana militia and, say, the Bundys yeah. in Oregon. But mm -hmm. also, of course, Thoreau is used as a champion of the progressive and environmentally friendly left. How is it that, that Thoreau can be used by everyone to support their views? I think part of the problem is that people tend to isolate passages from, um, say, civil disobedience and others of his texts, and then kind of develop a system or an argument just from those isolated passages. This is a problem, somehow insidious, uh, because it's partly, of course, related to an element in transcendentalist prose in general. That is, transcendentalist prose does tend to be discontinuous. Uh, it is not really interested in developing neither, you know, neither Emerson nor Thoreau were interested in developing a systematic argument. So much of it is aphoristic. It actually calls for picking out a sentence here and picking out a sentence there, etc. So one could say, well, if, say, the libertarian view, the libertarian reading of civil disobedience is a misreading, then it is a misreading that Thoreau maybe is partly responsible for himself, just like other, you know, misreadings of certain passages in, in say, say, uh, say, uh, Emerson. So it, it has to do, I guess, with this element of spontaneity, discontinuity, and deliberate inconsistency that goes with uh, transcendentalism as the stylistic correlative to the idea that, you know, being alive also means, you know, changing all the time. Discontinuity, inconsistency is a, a, an indication of one's being alive, you know. But then if someone then goes ahead and builds a system or a polit political theory on it, you have this problem of results that would probably have been abhorrent mm -hmm. to uh, Thoreau. 
It's a wonderful comment, and I actually do have one final question now. And this has to do with what Emerson said about Thoreau. Mm -hmm. He said, no truer American existed than Thoreau. No mm -hmm. truer American existed than Thoreau. So what did Emerson mean by that? How is Thoreau the most true American that ever existed? I would relate this comment to the Emersonian idea of, of self-reliance in the sense of independence from tradition, which doesn't mean that you ignore traditions, but you don't take them at face value. You don't ascribe sort of absolute authority to traditions. Also, the, the idea of nonconformism, you don't do something because everybody else does it in a certain way. Well, the Emersonian concept of, of self-reliance, you know, the various aspects relating to the past, relating to social constraints, liberating the self from uh, social constraints. Also, perhaps a strain in this idea of Americanness as deriving from the tradition of, of Protestantism, radical Protestantism, dissent. It was always, as, as Emerson points out in his, his eulogy, his funeral eulogy, much easier for Thoreau to say no and to say yes, uh, almost a, a temperamental uh, thr thrust toward um, opposition, you know, as, as if he felt, I think this is the way Emerson put it, as if he felt himself more in opposition, you know, this impulse to dissociate himself from anything that might constrain, that might limit, that might cripple the self. I think this is a, an an authentic and perhaps legitimate and admirable American impulse. What a wonderful ending. Thank you so much, Dr. Schultz. It was an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Once again, if you would like to learn more about Thoreau, Auf Deutsch, I highly recommend Dr. Schultz's most recent book called Henry David Thoreau, Vega eines Amerikanischen Schriftstellers, published by Mattes Verlag in 2017. If you enjoy The Transatlanticist, Please support the show by subscribing for free with your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind to give us a five-star rating and review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. That's asola at americacentrum.de. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.